Hi, and welcome to the Mark for Glory podcast. This is episode number 13. And today my guest is a award-winning gentleman in the hospitality industry. He's also a para-athlete. He's living in Bermuda. Hi, Brian. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Awesome. Thank you very much for reaching out uh, and having me on your, your show here. Yeah. So I'm grateful to be here. So thank you. We were just talking before. I know life is pretty busy and hectic down there, but the upside is you're living in Bermuda, right? I took a photo earlier and it, it just, color correction doesn't do it justice. Like the actual photos, it's, um, it is a slice of paradise, but you know, it comes at a cost. I hear a cost of living is pretty high there. Um, and you have all the weather to contend with and stuff. How long have you been living in Bermuda? I'm first generation Bermudian, so I was born here. But my dad is from the north of England and my mom was stationed on the US Naval base when there was one here. So we moved around a fair bit between going back to the UK and being in the States. But I came back to the island in 2003 for what I thought was going to be a, a year. And, you know, I've been here pretty much solid since, since then. So let's backtrack a little bit. What was your early life like leading up to your uh, amputation and all that sort of stuff? Like what was young Ryan like? That's a fascinating question, right? Cause I've been kind of going back through that process. You know, so we left the island when I was a small boy and that kind of theme and trend kind of continued throughout. So it was difficult to really ever find a place that was what I would consider fully home, you know? My parents split at a young age, so I would, and my dad got sole custody. So was raised in like a single parent environment, mostly with my grandparents as well. And was, sorry, was this in Bermuda or in the US? In both, uh, both places. So I actually hold a, I hold a US citizenship and a UK citizenship. And because I was born here on island to a Bermudian parent, I'm also considered a Bermudian status. Uh, so we've lived in England on and off four or five different times. I've been in Virginia. Yeah, I used to be in there for the summers and then coming back. So there was no real stable base. So that's kind of why when I came back here in 2003, that's really what I was looking for and to start building my own base and not have to be shuttled around very much anymore. Uh, my dad died last year, but I say that to say when we were going through the paperwork, you know, cause uh, when I was a teenager, for all intents and purposes, there was, because my parents had split and per the divorce agreement, it's weird to say this because it was done with positive intention, but I was also kidnapped uh, in like my high school, like second high school year um, by family because I was taken from 
taken without the knowledge of my other parent. That whole situation was quite jarring um, middle to late high school years. And then so I left England and went back to the States. I barely graduated high school, not because of any kind of lack of intelligence, but at that point I had done four high schools and like five high schools in four years. I've already been moving around. My class schedule was quite strange. So I opted for a, like a rapid program and graduated high school early and was doing like these computer networking courses. I was good at it, but I did not like it. And coming from a military family on the university campus, the Navy recruiters, oh, you know, all military recruiters come on, but the Navy recruiters were coming. And um, I was like, I think I wanna do that. But because I was 17, I could not get consent from my parent. My, even though my mom was a Navy veteran, she was like, no, hell no. <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of like how I ended up back here on island. And I thought I was going to be here for a year, make some money and like figure out what I wanted to do. Go back to the States and reenlist. Well, start that process over because now I'm an adult. And I kind of fell into hospitality. I saw a cocktail when I was young and my parents are educators and you know, they, the last thing that they wanted was like, and my dad was like a recovering alcoholic as well. So the last thing that he really wanted me to do was get into hospitality slash bar service, right? Cause hospitality is an overarching term but there's four different pillars and uh, what we do for food and beverage but it's multi-billion dollar industry and people don't really look at that. Like they don't really realize that their bartenders are ground floor or can be ground floor, but you know, you can take it to a very high level. That, that law of hospitality would say that even if you were my enemy and you didn't have a place to stay and you know, some food to eat, then it would behoove me to have, and if I have those things to give you shelter for that evening, right? So it's deeply ingrained. Now it becomes this point where it becomes an industry. So, you know, it has to be profitable as well. You know, the difference between music and the music industry. But I would argue that your airplane pilot who is about to take you on your journey to the island where you're going to see me necessarily behind the bar, we work in the same business. Right. When, and so you could say that he's in tra transport and logistics, but he's also the, or she or she, whoever, how they, you know, however they identify, that pilot is in charge of all souls on board. And so that is something that has to be taken into consideration as well, right? So we, and as someone who's behind the bar, we are responsible for responsible spirit service. People don't realize that alcohol, they do know, but I don't think they're always fully cognizant that alcohol is a drug. Right. Out of all the drugs that they could have made legal, it is a it it it, it can really uh, start to erode societal fabric. And you know, it's you would think that it's number one, but it's not. It's sugar, right? Sugar and caffeine, and but then alcohol is a top three contender. People don't necessarily realize that when they have a you know, let's say they're going to have a double. That's two ounces, or depending on where you are, it could be more, but. 
it takes the primo liver an hour to process that one ounce. So if you're starting to consume heavy amounts, that's just starting to compound over your evening. Um, and you would never do like, you'd never do, let's, we just use two ounces as the example. You would never do two ounces of cocaine in a night. You know, you wouldn't be able to, right? But, be, but it is still very much um, a drug. It's easily accessible. It's well marketed. In Bermuda, our drinking age is 18. So we have to be very careful when looking at IDs, um, especially because we're a global travel center as well, like for hospitality hub. And we get people from all around the world. So making sure that we're familiar with their IDs and their drinking customs. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into it uh, as far as you know, creative copy, logistics, manufacturing, production, dealing with people in a, in a positive manner, even when it could be a negative situation. So it was funny when we got into it, because it's not just sling, it's making drinks is actually, a, it's what people look at the most, but it's actually a very small part of what we actually do. It's like watching a movie, right? You forget about all the people that made that happen. Mm. I mean, it sounds to me like the way you're talking that you have a very holistic approach to that, the whole industry and very enlightened approach to it. And it sounds like something you're really passionate about. I would say yes, but not necessarily the drink side, although that has probably been my main focus. It is providing that level of service and making sure that our guests, whether they be in the brick and mortar space, I also work digitally, so people who support that, or, you know, just a random visitor to the island who I don't come into contact with, but making sure that they are welcomed with open arms in that situation. That's really my main focus. Like, you know, come as you are, right? It should be for everybody. So what uh, what were the events leading up to your was it an accident or how did it happen yeah june 5th of 2008 i was going home and my scooter stand struck the road which resulted in like me getting thrown from the bike i was holding on for a bit, but I got thrown and then the bike landed on top of me. I was in a rush to get home because I had an exam the next morning and I had stayed out later than I had intended to. But I thought I had slowed down enough to negotiate the corner. That, that, that didn't happen. When the stand struck, I got thrown, I landed. I broke my leg in nine places below my knee and above my ankle. That's June 5th of 2008. Fast forward 22 months. There's been reconstructive surgeries on my limb. I was wearing what they call an Elizaroth frame, which is a, it's a series of halos with long K wires that go through the bone and hold it all together. One of those wires came loose and caused an infection in my talus, which is your ankle bone, the piece that juts out. 
that caused a MRSA infection. So on the final surgery of what they thought was just going to be like reconstruction, my ankle disintegrated. And at that point, it starts to get very iffy. It's already been 22 months and there's been 14 surgeries. They're looking at scheduling 26 more, sorry, six more surgeries over the next 26 months. I'm in constant pain. I'm, I'm abusing painkillers at this point. I was in a deep depression and a tremendous amount of pain and just absolutely miserable. And I was putting that out on the people that I loved as well, you know? And this was in Bermuda? Yeah, at the time. The accident happened in Bermuda and most of the surgeries happened in Bermuda but we have a very close relationship with the Leahy Clinic in Massachusetts. So I actually had to fly out to Leahy where that final surgery was done, where they realized that there was a MRSA infection. I was put into quarantine. And then at that point they were like, all right, well, so there was some, uh, what's it called? It was like some experimental research being done on a John Hopkins at the time where they were doing like these replacement ankles kind of like how they do knee and hip replacements. I think they've gotten much further with that now, but part of the problem with looking at that option was that you need a talus to do it and mine had just disintegrated. What the surgeons wanted to do were they were like, it's gonna be, we're gonna take a bone from your left leg, which is my technically good leg, we're going to stick that where your ankle used to be and we're going to fuse it, what they call an arthrodesis. And then from there, they're going to take a muscle out of my back to close the hole. <laughs> and at that point, I'm like, I don't know about that, man. Like, <laughs> there's, a, there's no guarantee at this point either, right? That, it's, um, that I might not have to look at amputation further down the line. And what they don't tell you about a bone fusion is when they fuse your bone, there are these macro joints, which they fuse, but there are these little micro joints that surround that. So they start to get arthritic because they can't move as before. So what the surgeon wanted to do, they were hoping that the surgery was going to fail to a degree so that I could still get plantar flexion um, and dorsiflexion. But you know, like you're hearing a surgeon talking about they're hoping that the surgery is gonna fail. You're gonna miss a piece of muscle out your back. So, and you know, at this point I might have to have an amputation 26 months later, I'm already in pain. The girl I was in love with at the time who, you know, I still care for just from afar, she's gone. I haven't worked in the 22 months and everything, I'm, I'm just hemorrhaging savings and the insurance isn't gonna really cover. It was a it was a very uh, you know really had to go within and figure out what was going to be the best quality of life decision. And so I asked him about amputation. I was like, "What do you think?" Of, you know, because when they're talking about the the bone fusion, he's like, "Oh, you know, the things that you're not going to be able to do." So like, you know, walking uphill is gonna be a problem. Dancing is gonna be a problem. And I used to run like late primary 
and some of high school, right? So cross country. I was good at it, but I did not like it. It was a chore. The last time I had maybe run was probably about eight years before having that conversation with that surgeon. But when he's telling me all the things I can't do, I was like, what do you think about running? And he didn't laugh, but like he kind of like gave it like a snort, like, like, buddy, you're gonna, you're gonna have a hard time walking. Like, run, run is gonna, run is not gonna be in the cards for you. And I said, well, hey, what do you think about amputation? Because I had seen Oscar Pistorius run. And, you know, I was like, if you can see, if a bilateral amputee can beat able-bodied Olympians, I need to look at that as an option. The surgeons didn't want to do it. So a surgeon specifically didn't necessarily want to do it. Um, he was like, I'm a, a, you know, I'm a surgeon. I work in salvage. I'm not a butcher. I believe I can salvage your limb. And I said, well, yeah, but you know, the same thing you're talking about salvage, it's, I'm going to be in pain. I'm going to be disfigured. Like, no. So he made me do some research. And the other reason he did is because he said when he was in his residency, someone had come to them with like a body dysmorphia issue where they didn't feel like their arm was their own and they wanted it amputated. The, his attending surgeon said, absolutely not. <laughs> You know, because they're not butchers, right? And I get that. But the guy ended up doing it himself and bled out and, you know, pretty much you know, killed him. And they were, I was like, well, I'm not going to cut my own. I'm not going <laughs> to. I was like, no, you don't have to worry about me cutting it off myself. But I would much prefer a surgical, you know, some surgical precision with this. So, yeah, uh, Dr. Anthony Tabaji out of the Lay Clinic, they did a double amputation of on my right leg. It started at the ankle because that was really the only part that was seriously affected. But I broke it in between the ankle and just under my knee, right? Nine, place, nine places in a very small window. So the first amputation was like kind of at the ankle. But there is a point in prosthetics and building for them where too much or not enough length of the limb can really affect the leverage and the output that you can get from the device. So at my ankle would have only been 15 options, one five, where they took it up on the second uh, surgery, I have 15 centimeters below my knee. And normally they look to go between 12 and 18. So I'm right in a very optimum window for what they call, you know, for, for uh, below knee amputee. And there is a bit of a hierarchy. That's uh, like, you know, there's there's the nibbling surgeries that start on the toes, when you're going into the ankle, you get below knee. But when you lose that knee, you it it is it's a different ball game entirely. And then you start to go up a little bit higher, and there's the hip and like hip disarticulation. My actual prosthetist and who I met as a peer counselor as I was trying to make the decision, cause they, they were like, no, you have to go and do some research. And I was like, I was told a few times that it doesn't grow back. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like I, yeah, I, I know it does not grow back. <laughs> but yeah, so they made me do some research on it. And I, I reached out to the MPT Association of America and they sent over this peer counselor 
and the peer counselor is an amputee. His name's uh, Bob Emerson. He's a Paralympian in his own right. Like he competed in the 88 games in Calgary to represent Team USA. Uh, he lost his leg when he was nine, uh, above the knee. When he got out of sport, he went to go meet a prosthetist for one of his limbs. And he said the guy met him in a parking lot like it was a shady drug deal. And it made him feel really low, right? And so he never wanted anyone to feel that way. So he went back to school. And now he has his own clinic for uh, prosthetics and orthotics. So he's my peer counselor, he's my prosthetist, he's also my buddy. Like I helped move his oldest son into college. Like there's a greater relationship that comes along with it now. My sponsor as well for running a Step Ahead Prosthetics. They have a chapter in New York, Hicksville, as well as in Burlington. But he was with the surgeons on the second amputation and they built my prosthesis right after the surgery. It's what they call an IPOP, uh, immediate post-operative prosthesis. It's nothing like the one I'm wearing right now, the, the carbon. That's just like a plaster of Paris. But I was up and walking like, I think it was like 17 or 18 hours after the, uh, the surgery. Like I was doped up to the gills, but I was walking. And then it's just been kind of that process since like, uh, I came back to the island to rest and recuperate, get my stitches out. I went back to Boston. They built my first carbon prosthesis. I got back into fitness and started running. That's actually the picture there. That was the first half marathon I did. And then the company saw that I was trying to take my sport to the next level. And that's when I got my bladed scoop. So... Um, I run, I run competitively with that and represent the team, but this one's pretty dynamic too. It's a, it, they used to be set up in a vertical mount. So the pylon would only be maybe about six inches between getting into where the foot shell was with this posterior mount, it almost triples the length of the blade and it's set up more into like a sprinting, very high dynamic. Cause I break these things. Like I broke my running one going a bit too hard I think so and you know that they're, they're not cheap devices <laughs> and sometimes I have to like I've had to take medical loans out you know I've paid for them myself thankfully my community supports me and they've and they've helped out on GoFundMes and like uh, private donations so I feel very blessed in that regard and it was a learning experience that helped shift my perspective to be the person who's actually speaking to you today so I don't think I would change any of that process but oh, I learned a lot. <laughs> so let's go back for a second. You made the decision to get uh, your leg amputated and then they go ahead and do it. Like after you kind of sobered up from your heavily doped state, what did you feel like? Like obviously you must have felt different. Uh, well, it felt like a weight had been lifted. Like that source of misery like I was, I was already upbeat. We had a strategy about how I was going to get the prosthesis sorted out. I mean, as odd as it sounds, it was a, it was a, it was a bit of a shining light in a very dark time as well. You know, like 
partly what inspired it as well is funny. I didn't really like the movie, but it it was it's poignant. That movie, Coyote Ugly, you know, because it's about bartenders doing their thing, right? But the sense of what Coyote Ugly meant to them was that if a coyote was trapped, it would chew off its own limb to save itself, right? And I was like, okay, well, if a wild animal can do that and be cognizant of what's going on, I'm feeling very trapped. Then there is telling me it's gonna be more of the same. And I was like, well, you know, there's this option. Like, it doesn't sound good. A lot of my friends thought I was crazy, <laughs> right? And I guess you'd be like crazy like a fox. And I feel like a lot of that, a lot of those lessons learned over that time and the perspective really helped out with COVID. Like dealing with all of that last year, like the isolation, being under quarantine. I was like, I already did this 10 years ago, but I did it by myself. You know, and I'm not one to be like misery loves company, but it was, it was nice having some support and having some people to ride through the storm with. And I can, I consider those folks some real friends. Cause now that I'm back at work and people are like, oh, I've been checking for you. Weren't checking for me. My number is, my phone number has been the same since 2003 when I got here. I'm very easy to get a hold of. So when people tell me that, I'm like, don't try and Hollywood me, man. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, get out of here. During those tough times, you really learn who the important people are who are going to stick around, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you can somehow make, make friends or build relationships when you're at your lowest point, you know it's only going up from there. Let's talk about athletics a bit. Where did you start training? How did you get into things? I got a three month free gift certificate. Well, when I got back to the island originally into 2010, after having the surgery, receiving my prosthesis, a friend of mine, she just had one of the kids and she was like, oh, I wanna lose some baby weight. And I was like, girl, you're fine. but she helped me actually get back into running. So we'd go up to the national stadium. That's Janine, shout out to Janine. Cause she's been a rock. We went up to the stadium, we were doing some running but it's like an 18 month conditioning phase, you know, post amputation, the skin is hypersensitive. It was just kind of causing a bunch of issues. So I didn't keep up with it. But I think in, I guess it was like 2014, I got this free gift certificate for a few months at this, at one of the local gyms. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm gonna go in and hit it hard. Cause there was a, we have obstacle course racing here. Like there's a three day event all around the island. Um, people come in internationally. It's a, it's a really cool time. And from wanting to do military service and growing up on assault courses, I was like, oh, I want to do the obstacle course race, right? They call it the Bermuda Triple Challenge. I was like, I need to get fit. And I just got this free gift certificate. So makes sense, right? Um, I was doing that. I had some friends that were in CrossFit. I went to like one of their Saturday morning donation. It's the only CrossFit class I've ever been to. But I do like some of the parameters for the workouts. So I just do them by myself because I don't have a coaching staff. I hired some and my, for range of motion, 
and nutrition, but I don't have anyone who's like, I need to show up on that specific day. Cause my, my, my schedule is too hectic on the hospitality side. So I just have to stay very dedicated to my training, um, which, you know, we're all humans. Sometimes I don't really focus on it as much. Most of my mileage is happening right now is going backwards and forwards at the bar. I haven't run in weeks, but at that CrossFit class, the exercise for the morning was a 250 meter run and then come back and do what they call wall balls where you're like, you're throwing a medicine ball up at the wall while you're doing squats at the same time. And they paired, they paired everybody up. And I was like, I went, I told the CrossFit coach, and this was just, this was me limiting myself from a past experience from the running. It didn't work out the first time. So I was like, I told him, I was like, I can't run. And then he was like, all right, cool. Just get on the rower. So I'm doing the rowing and the people were coming in and they're all pumped. And I was like, well, hold on, Ryan. Why did you tell him that you have run in the past, but this is a new leg and you didn't even try. So I was like, shit. Went over to the coach and said, listen, man, I'm sorry. I didn't even try. Uh, he's like, oh, that's cool. And he paired me up with this guy with like some knee braces on. <laughs> so we're out running. We're doing the 250 and coming back in. And he's like, hey, man, you're pretty fast. And I was like, do not do that to me. Let's just get to it. Like, I don't need you. You know, I don't need you trying to talk it up because I'm, you know, because I'm injured or whatever handicap but as we're going in you know it had to be a circuit at 12 i think but we're starting to overlap people who had already started before me and so i'm like all right maybe i am kind of fast and then the guy with the knee braces is like hey man i think you need to slow down because he's wearing knee braces right <laughs> so he actually wasn't in the best shape for it so i was like okay i think i can do this now and I started with that. So the gym I was going to is right next to a park. I started running around that block. And then when I started to feel comfortable with that, I extended it to the next block. And then by the time I knew it, I was doing like four blocks and then going in and still doing my cross training at the same time. So I was like, okay, this is cool. The girl I was dating at the time, she signed me up for what we thought was a four mile run turns out it was a six mile run it's a four mile walk <laughs> right so i got to the, i was like oh, i can do four miles and i'm still trying to get ready for the ocr so i get to the four mile mark and i'm thinking we're done and the guy's like no no, no that's for the walkers you still got to go around but i finished i wasn't bleeding or anything like that i was still you know still smiling everything was cool my body felt okay and you know my, it was, it was, i was like oh i can i can do this so the next event, Bermuda, we have what they call the Bermuda Day Derby. It used to be on May 24th, so people still call it May 24th, but now it's been moved to May 28th. And that's where you see me running up there. It's a huge thing. Like there's parade and it's a full on celebration for Bermuda. But in the morning, it starts off with the, uh, the half marathon. There's a pedal bike race. There's a few different events. So I was like, okay, I want to run that. And we have another event on island called the end to end, which is from the eastern point of the, the island's only 22 miles square. 
So you start in the east and then walk all the way down to the west. It's a pretty much a walking and leisurely cycling event, but you can run it if you want to. It's off trail. You got to be prepared for like some cross country, but it's 14.1. So it's a mile longer than the half marathon. And I was like, okay, well, if I can do that, I, I'll probably be all right to do the half marathon. So I did the 10K. I did the obstacle course. I prepared myself to run the middle. I ran the middle with my dad running as a support crew because I have to stop. It's incredibly humid here. So the silicone liners, they collect a lot of moisture. And so to avoid any kind of skin breakdown, I have to stop every three to four miles. I've conditioned myself to get up to six now. But when I first started, you know, I probably had to stop like every one and a half, every two miles to stop, dry down and keep going without like ripping the skin off my limb or creating blisters, which is incredibly unpleasant when you have to wear a prosthetic leg. So did that one. It was like, what's the next event? So I just been kind of rolling on from there. And that was just kind of leisurely because I was still running with like the, the regular prosthesis. But then when I got that running device, I shaved off, like the first time I ever ran a half marathon, it was two hours and 45 minutes. The second time I ran one with the same course, more training, new device. I shaved off like 59 minutes, 15 seconds, something like that, almost just short of an hour. My fastest half marathon is 135 something. And that's including the stops that I have to take to do the liner changes. So if we looked at my, each one takes anywhere between three to five minutes. So if you look at my, what my true time would be if I wasn't having to make those stops, because they don't include that in any kind of handicap, I can do one under 130. I'm still trying to push 130 or under for half marathon, but this year wasn't it for me. My fastest mile in competition has been 545. And that's with two hairpins. So like, it's difficult to build up that speed, turn with the prosthesis and you know, pretty much decelerate and then have to get back up to acceleration pretty quickly, like that second step acceleration. So I've gone under 20 for my 5k. I'm still shooting for 40 for the 10. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, for the most part, happy with my times. At one point, there was some hopeful consideration for Paralympics and what, you know, elite level sport, if you want to call it that. But they don't really have para long distance or middle distance. It's merely just sprinting options. And I'm not really a sprinter. And as much as I'd like to represent my country on a high level, I feel like I already do that with hospitality. I didn't feel like I wanted to do that changing disciplines. There were options were turn into a sprinter or become a triathlete. And <laughs> I get no financial support from any of these organizations for the most part, except for my prosthetics. And that doesn't come from the IOC or the Bermuda Paralympic Association. So I was like, you know, while you'd like me to do these things, who's paying for it? Because I'm a good runner, sure. I can train to be a better one, absolutely. I don't like cycling. So to become an elite world-class cyclist is going to take a whole lot. And I'm not really a big swimmer. So I was like, you're asking me to switch up and either do two disciplines I don't even like with no kind of consideration for my full-time employment or, you know, given some kind of stipend.
So I still pursue high level athletics on my own terms. I had a meeting with the IOC and a, an Olympian here who's now heads the program. And so we had this meeting about my limiting factors, which we identified as like range of motion, nutrition, um, you know, having to work a full-time job and then still train. Uh, so I ended up like hiring, well, I went, yeah, my own yoga practitioner and uh, Pilates instructor who are, you know, coaches and friends. I went to a nutritionist and had like a, a, a plan laid out. So yeah, these are all things that I, but I had to finance that. It didn't come from any other support group. So yeah, I pursue it on my own terms at this point. Yeah, changing of the liner that you mentioned, do all amputees who run have to do that? Not always. There is a product, I can't remember what the name of it is now. But it's like an antiperspirant, but it's like like a clinical one. You gotta, you know, it's heavy. It's a heavy duty product, so you don't want to be taking it all the time. You can kind of take it pre-run and then wean yourself off of it. Uh, two of my teammates, they don't make the stop. So Brian Reynolds is a bilateral below knee amputee. He's one of the, I think he is still the like fastest amputee bilateral over long distance in the world. So, you know, his full marathon, I think it was like 303, something like that. He's got wheels on him, but that's the funny thing. Although he can hold that record, be as fast as he is, because there's not too many, they don't have his category in the uh, elite Paralympic setting. He could probably maybe run at the Commonwealth Games because they don't really make a delineation between able-bodied and para. But you got this guy with tremendous potential. And, he, you know, he represents himself and his team prosthetics. He's not representing Team USA, although he is, you know, he is Team USA. It's, it kind of hurts in some ways. But, hey, man, when there isn't a way, you just got to create it. And I think that's what you've done for yourself and the podcast, right? Build it and they will come. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So given all you've gone through and considering where you were before, what mental and emotional space you may have been before your accident and given what you're doing now, do you view it as a good thing or a bad thing, a blessing, a curse? How do you view it? A blessing? I mean, I think it's both realistically. And you can't have one without the other because that's how you help learn. But I was taking things for granted before. Now I'm just incredibly grateful to be here and, you know, working on a positive mental attitude for where my scope is. So that's kind of how I'm, you know, it, right now it's good vibes only. The last 19 months, has been another transformation. I, mean, I learned a lot through COVID, pretty much from day one of January, January 1st, 2020, to December 31st of 2020. It was a lot of, I, there were a lot of hits. Right? There was a lot of loss. I had some health scares. 
Like COVID ain't the only thing that can kill you, <laughs> right? People forget that, but yeah, like it was just, it was rough. And so, you know, this last year, starting 2021, I had to learn all those things to get to here now. You know, guys, it's definitely like, even today, before we were doing this, it was like, you know, it's, I, we probably wouldn't be speaking if some of these things hadn't happened. Or we would be speaking, but it would be in a different context. And last question. So, you know, especially on social media, we see maybe people like you or other athletes or celebrities, whatever, and we think everything's, you know, great in their life because this is what I see on Instagram. But um, are there days where you don't feel like doing what you know you need to do? And how do you get out of that? Well, I think the sport has really helped with that thing because you don't want to do your reps, but you know you still have to. People see a very tiny fraction of my life on social and they think it's like, he's got it all figured out. I was like, no. And people call me inspirational because they see me running down the street. And before I didn't really see it. Like, I was like, you have no idea. It's just, I'm just a regular guy. Just trying, I put my pants on the same way that you all do. But they talk about like imposter syndrome. I was like, you know, I don't deserve the praises that you guys are showering over. But over the last year and part of those lessons are like, actually, yes, I do. I came across, when you were talking about early childhood, I came across some photos of myself and my great grandparents who I had never seen it's like the only photo. And I got hit by these waves of emotion. And I was like, for that little boy to have gotten to be the person who you're speaking to right now, I went through a lot. And there's, I'm being pretty candid with you as far as the untold stories on this one. Cause like some of my family members would be like kidnapped. Yeah, the legal definition per some of those, uh, per some of those documents over there on my desk, you know, it's like Jesus, right? Um, it's just a whole, a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't really get shown. And I'm not up for telling on myself. I don't really do it for that. I originally started the social media side of things on my YouTube channel to kind of document my life through recovery of the prosthetics and like being, you know, an amputee in recovery. It's kind of taken on its own thing now where it's like cocktails, brand representation. I set up a business last year called Social Drinking Society, where we, you know, it's about creating a safe space for fellowship, whether it's online or on a brick and mortar situation. <sighs> but yeah, there's a lot that I don't share. Cause like one, it's nobody's business. I'm not really trying to burden anybody with that kind of thing either. Like my shoulders are broad enough to handle it. I get low. And um, that's why I told you earlier, I know the people who check for me because it's a very small group. And when I don't post on social media for a little bit, someone sends me a message, hey, are you feeling okay? Because I haven't seen you post. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm all right. You know, especially with this last five weeks, I haven't been able to, I haven't really been on it at all just because I've been kind of setting up in this new role. But yeah, I know the people who check for me and I'm incredibly grateful for that and the support. People in, in my real life kind of know what's going on to a degree, but I, you know, I spend a lot of time by myself and I'm 
out training or I'm behind the bar. So people see me as, you know, I am a, for all intents and purposes on island, I am a public figure, you know, as hospitality and bar in a, in a tourism industry, you can see me. My name has been written in, in, in publications. So people see that side, they see me out. They see I'm posting on social media, so they think they have a good understanding of my life. But in the middle of COVID last year, right after I had this health scare and I was down in the dumps, I had started a GoFundMe because I was like six months in arrears in rent, insurance, back payment. I was about to lose it all, right? And I was like, well, you know, set up a GoFundMe and just tell people the exact truth. So I did. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stretched thin. And people came to my aid instead of me just suffering in silence, trying to figure out how the hell I was going to do it. But then a guy I used to work with and I had a good level of respect for sent me this really, he said, it was like, you're a fraud, Ryan. I was like, what do you mean? That's a, that's a, it's like, we haven't spoken in years. So I was like, that's a bit bizarre. He's <laughs> like, that's not, it's not, it's not bizarre. It was just, a, I was like, Listen, man, I don't have any time for that. Like, I wish you and your family all the best. But it annoyed me because he wasn't wrong, but he wasn't right how he thought he was right. Because people see a very small snippet online. And I've also signed some morality clauses with some of the groups that I work with. So the image, I don't, sh I don't share everything. Absolutely not. And plus, it's on my private life. So I was like, oh, you think I'm a fraud because for the first time I'm actually showing that I need help. When I'm actually showing you my realest self right now, it took a lot to set that up. Right? So I was like, okay, well, I've seen what makes you guys applaud. I don't care what makes you boo. I, there were no messages of positive support when we set up the charity for people living with handicaps from this same person and that was widely publicized and I wasn't doing for the for the publicity but we do a whole bunch of other things that are that are publicized no kind of positive message hey well done but as soon as I did that I got these really weird and quite hurtful messages about that I was like oh okay <laughs> all right so the, I guess you do think I'm a fraud because you've seen the real me for the first time and I guess you don't like it, but I don't, that, that isn't on me. I'm not picking up that karma whether you like it or you don't. This is me. All my debts for the most part and all my dues are paid. So yeah, the person that you're gonna see right now is the real me, so. On that note, um, yeah. thanks a lot, Ryan, for taking the time. I'm grateful. Uh, for you sharing your story and I know it was a lot and it was it was probably tough for you I know you don't share much but uh thanks for thanks for this I'm hey I'm thrilled honestly thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and a platform to actually share some of that story I think later down the line I do want to maybe put out some kind of written material that helps with other folks and share those stories but Currently, I'm enjoying the video formats. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, one more thing. If there's anyone listening or watching 
who's sort of in the place, like that dark spot where you may have found yourself, uh, what would your advice be? It's okay to ask for help. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And use the platforms that are available. Like you have a community of people that you don't necessarily know are watching. Because people bump into me all the time. It's like, I had no idea that you would even know. Right? Like, I'm not doing it for that. But people are watching. And, you know, asking for help is definitely the first step. When you're feeling overwhelmed. And people don't, you know, there's that sense of independence. And you don't want to necessarily, you know, I want to be in control. Let it go. And, you know, like, if you are honest with your intentions about really needing some support and you have a kind of a concrete plan about, like, this is why I need that support, there are people, there are definitely people out there, you know, more call them angels, I guess, you know, definitely some of the relationships that the people have, um, for as much of the negativity, I get twice the positive and it's out there so there's associations there's support groups i mean if they want to reach out to me it's ryan.c.gibbons on instagram ryan c gibbons on facebook i'm on linkedin and i'm you know, only fans i got i'm on all platforms there's a youtube page you know i i do peer counseling with other amputees here on the island not as a certified peer counselor through the aca but through a, 11 years of experience and there not being very many people here on island so i i just end up becoming the de facto person to talk to so yeah ask for help if you need it there's nothing wrong with it there's no shame in it don't let anyone get that in your head if you if and if you have it in your head let it go i think that's good advice for anyone thanks again ryan for a sharing of your time and uh Hope you have a really good evening. Awesome. Okay. Mark, thank you very much, man. Stay blessed. Yeah, thanks. All right.